0: Good evening. Welcome to another episode of Classroom Critics. My name is Walter Freeman, and I am joined today, as usual, by Andrew Martino and William Ivers. And we are really pleased to uh, bring you a first today. The Classroom Critics have never covered a horror film before. And today we're doing the 1973 horror film, The Exorcist, based on the novel by William Peter Blatty, directed by William Friedkin, starring Max von Sydow, Ellen Burstyn, Linda Blair, Jason Miller, and Lee J. Cobb. Now, this is unusual for a a horror film because the Oscars, in my opinion, tend to snub two genres, horror and comedy. And yet in 1973, this film won Oscars for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound, Best Picture, Best Leading Actress, Ellen Burstyn, Best Supporting Actress, Linda Blair, and Best Supporting Actor, Jason Miller. And so uh, this film clearly had quite an impact, and we are here tonight to discuss it
1: in all of its gruesome glory. Feel good film right here. Yep. <laughs> to Lift everyone's spirits.
2: Right, right. <laughs> Nothing like a little demonic possession to, uh, to make your night. Right, right. Absolutely. So, so gentlemen, what,
0: uh, what makes this film work so much? We, we were talking about this beforehand. For me, this is one of the scariest films ever made. If not, this is one of the few films that makes me afraid to be alone at night and makes it hard to sleep. But I've had other people say they see it and they are indifferent to it. So I guess my two questions are, why is this film so scary to some and why are others so indifferent to it?
2: Good question. Uh, for me, uh, I've told this story to you too, but I'll, I'll say it again. Um, I saw it when I was 11 or 12 years old uh, for the first time. It was on TV and I and I caught it and I think my parents were doing something in and in, in, in having dinner in a different room or something and it, um, I didn't sleep for the next 12 years uh, after watching this. I remember w- walking into school the next day, I was in sixth grade, and my sixth grade teacher, because I wasn't the only one who saw it, there were some classroom friends who watched it as well. So we were talking about it, and uh, and my teacher, whom I'm not going to name because she's still alive, um, said, you know, that can really happen to you. Uh, and we were all very Catholic and, and very conscious of that. Uh, of, of demonic possession and exorcism. Um, all of us went to religious instruction once a week. So we were familiar with priests and, and how they worked. So that set me off. And, and the fact that, you know, here was a film that for me at, at that age, um, you know, I feared for my soul and I didn't want what happened to Reagan happen to me.
0: How about you Bill, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, honestly, this is a film that I've, I, I saw long ago and, uh, I mean, I was a kid when I saw this at first. And, yeah, it, it freaked the hell out of me when I was, young, you know, a lot younger. And, uh, and to prepare for this podcast, it, it, you know, it was the first time I've seen it in, in so long. And, and um, it was almost like seeing it again for the first time. And uh, for me, it's the slow the slow build, you know, in, a, in an age of where horror films are filled with jump scares and, and, and sensationalism. I thought this film really uh, psychologically toyed with you, and um, you weren't quite sure what was going on. Uh, the, the film just seems to have this off-putting feel to it. Not just in—I mean, obviously the, the the core of it is obviously extremely disturbing, but just you know, character behavior and scenes that sort of seem a little bit disjointed and abnormal characters doing strange things. Even the editing, I find I find to be just purposefully just awkward Um, and it's not obviously due to a lack of uh, skill on the on the filmmakers part obviously but it's it's done intentionally I think to keep the viewers just a little bit um, off Mm -hmm. in in, in order to prepare for you know what's going to happen later on in the film and you know I think it just sort of taps into you know one of the things I bring up when we do thriller and horror with my students uh, in the intro of film class, you know, we just bring up the this the idea of what what scares us. You know, what scares us in in fiction, and uh, you know, I get all sorts of answers, and often it's just the unknown. And uh, I think this film really taps into that. You know, there's there's so many questions that you have as you go into the film, even though the film is based on you know theology that many of us have grown up with uh this the concept of demonic possession and this other world, this darkness, this spirit world that coexists with uh, you know, human interaction and in, you know, the physical world. It's um it's something that I think it's that puzzles even skeptics and, and you know, w- regardless of where you are theologically, um, it just brings up so many fears and questions that I think are just sort of deep seated. From our childhood upbringing, you know it, whether or not we went to Sunday school or not. So, um, to answer your question, I just think for me the off-putting nature of this film, the narrative itself, is just weird. You just know something bad is going to happen. Obviously, the pay in the payoff, it, it does, and um, it's uh, it holds up. Let's put it that way. I think it holds up. I think horror, and I mentioned this in an earlier conversation, horror in in many cases like comedy, is often a sh- shelf life, but This film, in fact, I had to do a double take. When I sat down to watch this again, in my mind all along, I said to myself, oh, this is a late 70s, early 80s film. And then when I went to go watch it again, 1973? Yeah. Wow. And to think of all the the, the graphic nature of, of so many of the scenes, it's just amazing that... I mean, what were people, what was going through the, the heads of audiences back during this time? I, I can't even imagine. You,
0: you know, you bring up the point that, 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 you know, it may not be shocking by today's standards. You know, we've become uh, immune, I think, to the shock value of language and, and things like that. But in 1973, and I'm not saying people were quaint and naive back then, but in film, you go into a film and you expect monsters jumping out at you. And there's always going to be the, oh, we're going around a corner. Is it going to jump out or is it not and in this case, like, like you said, Bill, a great point, the slow burn. I mean, to me, this film <clears throat> does for me what Jaws did for me, where it, you know that there's something lurking out there and you're going to get a good look at it. But in the meantime, you're waiting for it to emerge. And it does so ever so slowly. And, um, you know, but the, the difference between this film to me and Jaws is if I want to avoid a shark, I don't have to go into the ocean. If I want to avoid a demon. Where do you go? I mean, this thing invades the body of an innocent twelve year old girl who has for all intents and purposes no connection at all to demonology or even theology and if she's not safe, you know who is the only the only gateway portrayed in the film is the Ouija board that she was playing with, or she contacts captain Howdy
1: right yeah,
2: yeah. and that's so, what... uh, I'm sorry, good. That that was actually one of the holes in the plot for me. That wasn't explained as well as I thought it could. That that those first um, several scenes with Max von Sydow and the, and then the jump to Georgetown. And I get the Ouija board and, and things like that, but why the demon actually inhabited her? And you know, all the way from from when we hear those noises in the attic um, to the open window of her bedroom and and how the demon got from Mesopotamia or, you know, the modern day Iraq to, to Georgetown of all places. Um, oh,
0: I, I I read an article about that, believe it or not. Uh, the, um, And, and so Siddow is on the dig in Iraq and they uncover the pieces. And, and there's two things, Pazuzu, which is the demon of the wind, but he's an Assyrian or a Babylonian demon. And then there's a Catholic medal and, and, um, Father Marin says evil against evil. And apparently the um, Pazuzu at one point drove out an even worse demon back in the day. And then apparently the Catholic medallion was brought in to keep him contained, but he's actually not connected. That's not connected to Georgetown. It's only a premonition for Marin that he's being told he's going to face this, this demon in his future. And he, then he goes and he seeks out the statue and there's that great shot of him standing there. And there's the two dogs fighting, off to the side and so apparently it's not that the demon was unearthed and then invaded the girl it's just that it was a premonition for him that because apparently he faced uh i don't want to get too technical but apparently it's not even necessarily it's definitely not the devil and it may or may not be pazuzu it's never named right right But apparently there's a reference to him facing this same demon 12 years earlier and so i guess he knows it's coming again and that's i think part of what's scary about it is they never explain why the girl why the little girl
2: right and then that part is referenced in the film when he was in Africa and it nearly killed him when they were talking about who could perform the exorcism Yeah, it's
0: the same and, and I guess in, in the Bible I guess Jesus faced a demon mm-hmm. who said his name was Legion and then he cast him into pigs and yeah. the pigs all jumped off a cliff and drowned themselves uh, which brings us to the end of the film but I don't right. <laughs> I get ahead of myself um, yeah, yeah, so, a, so lot of,
1: a lot of questions about the nature of the demon is I think really adds to the overall uh, effect of the film, particularly for me. I, I mean, just how powerful the demon is, I think is is not exactly. It, it wasn't clear to me how how powerful the demon and how much damage uh, he can do to these people. Um, now again, I'm I'm going on one recent viewing so a lot of this is unclear to me but when they for, when the, the priests come in and see the demon for the f- first time and start asking questions um, I guess one question is why doesn't the demon just go ape right then right it seems like it seems like the demon holds back a bit and uh, so it, it almost makes me wonder if the demon um, limits himself uh, is the demon toying with these people you know, just how powerful is this demon, and how limited is this this force?
2: And it could also be Reagan still fighting that too. Yeah. There is that. There is that really horrific scene where they uncover her, her belly, and there's the help me uh, on it. And, yeah. and perhaps that you know she's still somehow fighting that that off, and the demon hasn't gained the strength yet to to fully take her over. Yep.
0: I, and yeah. I think the demon. Um, I, I think the goal of the demon is not Reagan. I think it's Father Marin. Yeah. And, you know, there's a scene, and again, I'll jump to the end a little bit when, when Marin dies and father Karras comes back in the room and he sees the body of father Marin and the demon or well, Reagan, but if the demon is sitting there and is dejected, yeah. he didn't want Marin to die. He wanted to, you know, Marin died of a heart attack, not related to the right. demon. He, the demon doesn't win. And, and so, you know, when Karras grabs the demon and starts punching him, that, it changes things, but I, I think that the whole, the whole idea was that the demon is kind of a coward. He, he takes over a 12-year-old yeah. girl and yeah. uses that because he never, you know, he, he vomits on Karis, but he never attacks Marin directly.
1: Let's talk about that for a second. Like, I mean, from a filmmaking standpoint, I think just casting Linda Blair uh, in this role, I think, was just a stroke of genius. Yeah. Uh, she just... Uh, you know there, there there's such a terrifying it, it's so scary to see such such an innocent sweet face sort of be transformed into this uh gruesome demonic uh being and it just I don't know there are so many choices there little choices but they just add up to this incredible effect just um from what I understand the voice that was used for her was actually um a female, a woman voice actress.
0: Yeah. Mercedes McCambridge.
2: Yeah,
1: Mercedes McCambridge.
2: Yeah. Oh, it was.
1: Oh, yeah. no kidding. Oh, and, thank and you for telling this. Right?
2: And we know what film she was in. That yeah.
1: Week. Oh, that, that's, that makes me happy hearing that. And if they got that voice wrong. Yeah. If, if they, I mean, they hit that, they, they p- pick the perfect
2: yeah. voice
1: and you know, whatever effect they put on it or, the, you know, it, they got it exactly right because we know that you know, voiceovers can go very wrong. Yeah, they can make a break. And if they, if they made one yeah. false move with presenting her, presenting this demon, it would have uh, it would it would have just wrecked the movie. It would have sabotaged the entire film.
0: It would have taken you right out.
1: Yeah, and not to mention you know the, the performance, the fact that they 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 aligned the the voiceover with Linda Blair's mouth movements. Precisely, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I was looking for, you know, um, false moves here. I was looking for incongruity with the, the voice and the, I I, I was looking for it to be out of sync, but I I couldn't, I couldn't detect any of it. Um, so good. And she, in her, and Linda Blair's movements were right on. And I, I, from what I understand, there was a, um, they, they made a, a dummy or or a, or a puppet basically that was um, for certain scenes. But I, I couldn't. Obviously, I would you know the the head three sixty was was yeah. certainly one of them. But um, I assume that much of it was was her her movements, you know, her physicality that really sold it. And uh, I thought it was fantastic.
2: And, I, I, and wish, and, I wish. And, and in many ways, that, that role has never left Linda Blair. I mean, it it sort of, it's followed her, not sort of, it has followed her up until this day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the, uh, the curse of early success, right? (laughs) Right, right.
2: I wish,
0: um, with the head spinning sequence, they they do it, they do it twice. Um, and the first time it only spins around halfway and you hear the bones in the neck snapping and then she speaks in the British voice because she's actually, they say later that Burke, the, the film director that was killed, had his head turned completely around, suggesting it was done before he was thrown out the window. And he, the demon speaks in his voice. I won't say what he says because it's pretty graphic. And so the head turns halfway. And I thought that was a terrific effect. Later with Father Marin, it turns a 360. And I didn't, I didn't think it was um, as effective. That's the yeah. one that, uh,
1: yeah oh absolutely uh, while I'm thinking of it okay this this I was thinking of this on the way over here so if you guys could, again I'm, I'm going off one viewing here um two if you count the one as, as, as a kid all right so um at the party the director you mentioned the filmmaker walt, walt um he makes this um seems like it was out of out of nowhere this uh comment to and I even forget who the other housekeeper
0: to fritz the German guy
1: yeah yeah and yeah, in, in making some sort of Nazi comment <laughs> could, could somebody uh, where did that come from? And what is, what is that, <laughs> what is that aligned with?
0: So nothing except, I, I would say, I would put it on two things. One, um, and there's this, um, a lot of conspiracy theories around this film that that maybe he was molesting Reagan, but, but Friedkin himself, I think, or Friedkin or Blatty said, no, that's not our intention. Um, he was a great guy. Reagan was even worried that mom was going to marry him and he'd take the place of the dad. But when he gets drunk, he gets really obnoxious. And so he insults the German and they, they throw him out of the house. But the other thing could be uh, there's two scenes where you see peripheral violence springing up when, when Marin's looking at the statue in the desert and the two dogs are fighting. And I think later, I think it's in the director's cut, where they're waiting in the hospital for one of the tests to be done and two little boys get into a fight in the waiting room. And I think so. I think that that could be attributed to just the peripheral violence that springs up around the demon.
1: Okay. Got it. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So when she comes down during the party and she uh, wets herself um, and comes down into the carpet, she's uh, foreseeing someone's death in that part. Who? Who is? Is it the director's death that she's foreseeing nope, she there? That,
2: wasn't it an astronaut? Yeah. Yeah. She says you're going to die up there. Very. Con- okay that's a brilliant scene in my mind i mean uh, linda blair nailed that for as young as she was there's no emotion in her face and she just you know methodically says you're going to die up there
0: well that scene yeah, speaks okay. to the, the, the stages of according to you know Catholicism the stages of demonic possession is demons apparently inhabit places all the time but they can muster only enough power to just scratch at walls and stuff the sounds in the attic but when it, when it actually gains power um, speaking in tongues uh, having knowledge of events it normally couldn't and being able to predict the future are apparently the signs that would convince someone and and so that even though we never see whether that comes true or not I think it's suggested that that it is
1: but I I entirely forgot that Max von Saito was was in this film you know when I turned it on the other day and uh, I see him, and the first thing that pops into my head, I'm saying, is How old was yeah. this guy? <laughs> I know he just he just passed away recently, and I'm like, holy, I mean, he looked they they, they and I guess he was only um, I had to look it up. He was only in his 40, early 40s, right? When he yeah. Yeah, when he so, accident. So I'm, so like, myself, I'm so. like, I'm seeing myself. Uh, he's uh, looked, the, he's same looked the same since <laughs> for the past for the past <laughs> years, 50 years.
2: But, oh, but, am I the only one here? Like no, yeah, oh, there's yeah, no, something yeah. going on with the audio. We're, uh,
0: we're, we're all, our, our sound is
2: possessed. Our sound is, yeah, it's it's becoming possessed, right. Can,
0: can I take this opportunity to say what I, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that apparently happened on the set. Set catching fire, people dying. The, the actor playing Burke died before the film was released. Um, Max von Sydow's brother died on the first day of shooting. And, and And a lot of people have dismissed that as saying, a film this size with this many people, there's going to be deaths. If you lump them together, it looks, it looks uh, bad. But but um, Billy Graham has himself said that the the demon is in the celluloid. But my favorite, favorite. I'm sorry, that was a poor choice of words. The creepiest fact that I've ever read about this film is is in the scene where they're doing the carotid catheter for her. Is apparently a scene that most people say is, is one of the more disturbing ones in the film, but they used a real, they used a real team of doctors to do that. And if you watch the film, the gentleman attending to Reagan with the short beard, his name is Paul Bateson. And he was a real, you know, he was real, real guy doing his real job comforting her went on to become a murderer. He, he murdered a journalist and then confessed to being the, the trash bag murderer to, to, killing six people, cutting them up, and putting them in trash bags. He was never convicted, but he confessed. Mm. And Friedkin, when he directed the movie Cruising, visited him back in prison and had him be a consultant on that film. And so there's literally a murderer and, and, a, and a, oh, one goodness. who claims to be a serial killer in that scene. If you watch that again, his eyes are as dead as can be, even though he's speaking words of comfort. Oh, I just goodness. find that to be the creepiest fact wow. in this film.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna to have to go back and watch that scene. It's funny because that's the only scene that I had to close my eyes to because I couldn't see it
1: <laughs> out of all the things. Yeah. For me. wow, yeah, that's uh, it's freaky. Yeah, I, I've heard many people claim not many people, but um, I've heard people claim that it's a curse movie. Also, heard, yeah. you know, stuff like saying, Look, uh, you know, it's it, as you said, well, it's going to happen with a, a cast that large, um, yeah. so. I don't know. It's interesting. I I came across an article actually, as I was, um, researching the film. Um, in fact, I saw an article here in the Atlantic. Um, the exorcist titled, uh, the exorcist and the lost art of Catholic storytelling. And, uh, it points out, I'm reading a paragraph here. The, I'm sorry. The, um, okay. Okay, at the time, Blatty's story was the newest entry in a lineage of critically acclaimed popular works from Catholic storytellers during the 1960s and early 70s that transcended genres and styles. They include the comedic and grotesque fiction of Flannery O'Connor, the philosophical novels of uh, Walker Percy, the beat Catholic rhythms of Jack Kerouac, the flawless short fiction of Catherine Ann Porter, the terse but complex writing of the convert Ernest Hemingway, power stories of uh, J.F. Powers. And it goes on to cite, um, okay, so the era of Ecosyst was a time of visible and influential Catholic intellectuals and artists, um, including uh, Marshall McLuhan, Andy Warhol, Catholic culture of of that period was no no monolith though, uh, contrasting the conservative uh, William F. Buckley with the more progressive uh, Thomas Merton. The era even saw the rise of culturally Catholic writers, those who retain the language, metaphors, and culture of the church without practice belief. Cormac McCarthy, uh, Robert Stone, of course you have uh, other filmmakers, Martin Scorsese, Francisco Coppola. Um, And so it's interesting, I hear, I've also heard of uh, actually devout Catholic folks during this time actually attending this film. And I'm just wondering how much they actually knew about it before they, they, they went into the movie theater that that day, so I found to be interesting. In fact, I saw another claim here on another article. Part to be an interesting. Point, let me see. Sorry, I had it queued up here, honestly. Okay, ideologically, the exorcist is conservative almost to the point of reactionary, in addition to a forthright insistence on the existence of evil. In tangible form, in the presence of actual demons, the film also subtly implies that these demons prey upon the breakdowns of so- uh, of social conventions and institutes. Interesting point. What what would you say according to this little blurb here? Would you say what social conventions do you think, if there's any truth to this little claim, what? Does that make does that resonate with you at all? Do you think there's any um, breakdown in the film of, of social conventions or institutes that uh the demon might have latched onto? I yeah.
2: Well, I mean if you think about when it's made, right? It's coming right after the sexual revolution. Um we're we're in you know in the middle of the Vietnam War. So society itself is is in this post-war malaise. Um, you know the assassination of JFK, of Martin Luther King, of Bobby Kennedy. Um, so there is this sort of sense of of being in lost in the wilderness. And I think, especially at that time, for a lot of Catholics, um, you know, the, the masses were were getting away from Latin and 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 going more towards English. And so there is this breakdown, I think, of all of these conventions. And then, of course, you've got uh, Chris McNan- Mc, uh what's her name, McNeil, who is the actress, who is a very from what I understand, a very strong feminine figure, right. Doesn't need a husband um, has a full-time job is very successful and raising a daughter on her own. Um, so there's, I think something to be said about that as well.
0: And, yeah. and to, to add to that, cause you're, you're spot on is, is, you know, is, as you, the article says it's conservative in a yeah. viewpoint. So I'm, I'm not saying I agree, but I'm responding to that. Whereas if you look at the youth rebellion that the conservatives, you know, at the time greatly feared, and as Andrew said, the marriage has broken down, you have a strong feminist figure, they're making a ridiculous film about a student uprising, she gives a big speech in the one scene they show, and then she goes home and her daughter is swearing, Mm -hmm. uh, masturbating, urinating, you know, and, and doing all of these things to the extreme that a conservative mind at the time maybe would have thought was indicative of pure evil. And again, I'm not saying I agree with the, with the article, but I think that's the impetus behind that, that particular and, word choice.
2: Of course, conservatism in this sense, as I understand it, is, is um, part and parcel of tradition, right? And, and you're going against tradition and, and what's happening is this sort of new world has opened up and is continuing to open up. And then, but there's this push, this existential push against that, that kind of new way of life. Yeah, I found it to be an interesting point,
1: um, not something that really went through my head as I was watching it. Uh, however, I just find it interesting that the film itself, just it it just makes the assumption or it, it has us, it requires that we sort of roll with the assumption that evil is a clear, right. tangible, present thing in our physical world. You know. Yeah. Um, and mother- in, in, in an age where evil or, or right and wrong is a matter of opinion, uh, this film clearly states, okay, evil is something that can take shape and, um, you know, go against the the forces of goodness, um, which obviously is a, a theological uh, presupp- presupposition.
2: This goes back to your earlier point, though, which I thought was, was dead on in, in the fact that evil is the unknown right so it's what we don't know there is that sense of doubt and if if you know if i remember everything that i learned as a a catholic as a boy it's you know how the devil gets at you is by sowing seeds of doubt right that you doubt your faith you doubt who you are and this kind of snowballs into into an uncertainty and this is exactly what the demon is playing on right this is what what um von seidel's character is telling um the other priest you know don't believe a word that the demon says because they'll lie to you and he right. does yeah
0: and, and and to to follow that trail i mean you know um father caris throws what he claims is holy water on the demon and the demon says it burns does it really or or is the demon lying you know the demon is, says he's satan but he's not yep. um, you know the right. demon has the power to cause kinesthetic energy to happen he opens the drawer he, he puts the Schiffer robe up against the wall. He, but, but when he's asked to do it again, he can't. Or he claims that he, he's biding his time, but maybe he's used up whatever power he has. He just lies throughout. And uh, but that brings me to the ending. Um, I, I read there's, there's three possible ways to interpret the ending. And it's, it's one of my favorite shots in the film when Father Karras says, come into me. And then he does <laughs> And the look on his face is like, you know, be careful what you ask for. But does the demon win? Is the demon vanquished or or what? I mean, there's a couple of ways to read the way that ending goes. And, and given how much the demon has lied, as you said, Andrew, sowing those seeds of doubt throughout, you don't really know. And then the film doesn't bother to answer those
2: questions. And I think that's a testament to the film's power as well. But to get back to an earlier point, we, we can't forget that Father Karras is also in the midst of a religious crisis himself, right? Yeah. He's doubting his, his worth as a priest. So he's already weakened, not even and more than the, just the death of his mother. And he feels that he's betrayed her by failing to, to live up to his obligations. But there's also that, that sense of he has profound religious crisis at the moment.
0: Yeah. And he doesn't feel worthy. And right. I remember I, I talked about the the story in the Bible of, of Jesus casting the demons into swine, yeah. fil- you know, unholy swine and then drowning. And, you know, in a sense, his father, Karis, the swine. Right. And, and again, does he actually throw himself out the window or does the demon throw him? you know it's it's
2: unclear i mean i i think this is what, what Freakin does really really well and and using jason miller in the way that he does if he, if you notice the shots that he frames jason miller in they're all sort of you know he, there's a rumpledness to him right he, he looks rumpled he looks uncapped um he looks always on the verge of collapse yeah um, i love that scene where he first goes to visit his mother and he's walking down that um what is, you know, the scene is magnificent because it, it accurately shows New York City in the 19, early 1970s, you know, um, but he walks into that, to that house and, and there's just something for me that was profoundly disturbing this time, rewatching that. There was something really sad about that scene.
0: So I'm going to go back to an earlier question, and, and I think we, we touched on it, but this film, all three of us agree this film is terrifying. It, it haunts me even I cannot, I cannot watch this film and not carry it with me away. Very few films do that to me. What do you say is the source of that? I mean, what, I, I know what it is for me. What, what do you guys think it is for you in terms of, you know, why is this film so effective for those who are scared by it?
1: Uh, again, I think it goes back for me to the, to the unknown. Um, and it's the, the lack of certainty of what coexists with us on this on this earth on this planet um, you know is the physical uh all that we you know live with or is there something else you know and i I think just having that in the back of your mind not, not something I dwell on constantly but uh, um you know it, it's just something that I think always has always been something I thought that i've I've considered and thought of. Um, so it's just, I think the unknown, and again, it goes back to the question that I ask my students, and that's ultimately what we kind of come up with is it's, it's the lack of certainty, lack of, lack of control, uh, in a demon such as this, whether it's, whether it's a demon or, um, you know, if you want to carry it over to like, a, you know, the sci-fi realm, the, the lack of control when, you know, you have whatever, an, uh, an invasion from a, an alien species or, Uh, Just the idea of that you're completely help helpless Mm -hmm. uh, when facing certain things, and uh, when when you talk about the supernatural, it's I think you know you up the ante with that. It's just we we don't know, and that lack of knowing. And I think human beings we need a certain amount of control, even if it's an illusion. You know, I mean, we live with every day a certain level of this self-deception that we are in control of a lot of things when I think if you really try to quantify it, we lack control in, in a disturbingly um, high number of, of things in our life. But we, we like to think that we have more control than we do. Mm -hmm. And so I think this film sort of, I I think it just sort of um, I think just puts that in the form of a, of a demon you know, and, and again, it sort of taps into the theological uh, perhaps seeds that are already in many of our our minds as we were brought up in, in certain faiths, so.
2: Yeah, for, for me, it goes back to, and I watched it again this week, but I keep going back to that 11-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy that I was and how I felt, and it brought back those emotions again. So uh, I very much agree with Bill, and it, it's this sense of the unknown, but let me try to put it in a different way. We live, especially, you know, we're recording this under a pandemic, um, and there's been a lot of talk, especially recently, about science, and, and we, we want, you know, we trust science, and we rely on science to make us feel better, or at least to give us a sense of security, and for me, it's it's all about that sense of security. So, this is, you know, this demon becomes something that science can't explain. And I think Friedkin does this wonderfully when, when he brings in the psychiatrists, right? And they, they've never seen anything like this. So, you know, it's something in their frontal lobe and they look at that and they do the spinal tap and, and science can't explain what's happening to her. For me, that's when it got progressively more frightening. When they, you know that you're not well and you're going to experts, medical experts and psychological experts, and they, in all their expertise, cannot explain what is wrong. And so that, that sense of the unexplainable And and, and another point that Bill brought up that I think is very good is the sense that all of that unknown is manifested into the demon. It has to be, because if we don't put a face to something, it just becomes, as Heidegger said, this realm of anxiety, right? And we don't, anxiety is a mood. We don't do it. We don't know what to do with it. But we turn anxiety into a fear of the something. And when it's a fear of the something, then we can combat it. So it's like, you know, I, I don't feel well. I go to the doctor, hoping that the doctor will tell me something. Even if the news is the worst possible news, if they tell me what's wrong with me, I think I feel a little bit better because now at least I know why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. If that makes sense. Oh, good.
1: I also like how you pointed out, Andrew. The you know the experts. What what do you do when the experts are confused? Right. Um, and we know all about that right now. You know. Uh, exactly. <laughs> we we <laughs> want to hang our hats in. Believe me, I'm the first person who will very willingly just say, yes, doctor.
2: <laughs> yep. Whatever
1: you say, doctor, you, you know, I, I, I want to do that. I do do that. Um, however, you know, we, we're just getting bombarded with, with so much information, some of it contradictory. And when it comes down to it, we just sort of have to put our faith in it, you know, and, and sort of, you know what, I'm going to wear that mask. <laughs> I'm going nice. to do what I need to do. I'm going to stay six feet away um, and just hope for the best. Yeah. And just the, the confusion among the experts and the exorcists that, yeah, that definitely added to it. You know, when, when the medical community couldn't figure it out and then they go over to the psychological community and they couldn't figure it out. Right. And finally, as a last resort, they sort of went to the originals, <laughs> the theologians, right. Um, with practices that were centuries old. But they and, still uh, put
0: it away from, they say it's, it's psychosomatic possession. If if they believe it's possession, then maybe they'll believe in exorcism is the cure. Right. right. Yes, that's it's true. And,
2: and the first thing that the, that Kara says to her is, I would, you know, she needs to see a psychiatrist. And, you know, Ellen Burstyn gets really upset in that in that scene where you're sending me right back to the people who sent me to you. And you can, I mean, that's a testament to her, I think, brilliance in this part. You know, she, you really feel for her. Um, and maybe, you know, as a parent now, I could relate more uh, with, with what she's going through, but,
1: didn't one of the experts try to explain away the uh, seemingly uh, supernatural occurrences that were happening in that bedroom, uh, the movements of the bed, yeah. um, kind of relating that to a, a mother lifting up a, a yeah. car? Um, but the film says no. The film says no. This is a demon possession. You know, it, it, yeah. I think a lot of, I think very effective ghost stories um, will leave that question mark, right? We. Yeah. Well, you know, Walt and I. I'm sure. I, I'm. I would assume Andrew, you, you're a fan of uh, *The Turn of the Screw*. Yeah. You know uh, where, you know the the, the actual nature of, of the haunting is is within question. But right. you know, clearly in this film, um, the filmmaker is saying, no, this is a uh, this something supernatural happening, yeah. and uh, you have obviously drawers opening up and yeah. beds moving in a way that no, you know, no matter how much adrenaline is in a little girl. They're not going right. to <laughs> make a bed do that. So I, I found that to be an interesting, um, interesting take because I mean, this film could have been made without that blatant statement that this is an actual demonic possession, right? I mean, well, maybe, that, it would, maybe it wouldn't have been. It.
0: Well, that's what does it for me in terms of making this film so scary. The thesis of the film is <clears throat> evil is not an intangible. Right. It's, it's a real thing. You know, I grew up in the Methodist church and I always kind of was taught more or less <clears throat> evil was a choice. You're going to be bad. You're going to be good. Now maybe Satan's tempting you, but, but, but you ultimately make a choice. And here evil is a physical yeah. presence. And to me, again, I'll, I'll relate it to Jaws. Um, every time you go in the ocean, a shark knows you're there yeah. and how many people are actually attacked by sharks yeah. over a year? Very few, but you are always on the radar of a shark. And, and I, I you know, it's the same thing as walking down the street. They say you, you walk by something like 17 serial killers in your life. Uh, to me, this is the same case where if you're gonna buy into the film's premise that, that demons are dwelling in another region somewhere waiting for a portal to open into this world, and you might be one of the unlucky ones that are on their radar. And so they come through, you know, in this case, it's the Ouija board and they do their thing. And so this film, in no uncertain terms, I believe Bill said this, it doesn't hint that there might be a demon. There's a demon and it's not psychological and it's not scientific. It's a demon. And and that to me is the scariest part is to think that if these creatures are real. Then that raises a a whole lot of theological conundrums for us.
2: And the whole metamorphosis, just the physical metamorphosis of Reagan from that cute child to, you know, just before the end, when she is that hideous sort of creature that, and and the mother says, that's not my daughter up there. Yeah.
0: That thing is that not thing, my yeah. daughter. Yeah. 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 I would know my daughter. It's yeah. a great speech. It's a great, very well-written speech. Yep. Absolutely. Very.
1: Um, what about, um? I just want to mention uh, Lee Cobb, Lee J. Cobb. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, I don't think we've mentioned him yet as the, uh, the Lieutenant, uh, but I saw, I love seeing him and especially in a latter day role like this. Uh, in fact, I, th- I don't think he, uh, had many film roles after this, if I'm not mistaken, but, uh, I, I thought he, I thought his, uh, his part, his character was, was interesting. You know, he played the, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the, the s- cynical, um, World weary detective. World weary. Right? That's that's the word we're looking. Who happens to be a film buff, right? Am I? Am I? Yes. Yeah, well, what's with that? I mean, it seemed to be ty- you know, apropos of nothing, but uh, <laughs> that <it> was cool. <laughs> that it was in there.
0: One of the few moments of humor in the film when he asked for the autograph yeah. for his kid, and then she's like, "Who do I make it out to?" And he gives this like almost this little coquettish smile. It's really for me. Yeah,
1: like... <laughs> and I don't know if I ever knew that Lee Cobb was. Um, was a, a follically challenged man. <laughs> because every single role I've seen him in until this one, he had a head of hair. So I don't know if he was wearing a a big Crosby special on his head or, <laughs> 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 or he, he shaved it for, but I don't know. But I like
2: this character because he gave it that noirish sort of feel, you know, uh, to the film. And it it just added another depth to it.
1: Yep, yep. No, I, I think it, it it added a really neat element to the story. Yeah. So the original book that this is based on didn't it take place in baltimore am
0: i, am no, I the, the book the book changed it to but apparently the case files and i guess i forget it i don't know if it was bladdy or friedkin was actually given the case files by the catholic church and they said but you got to turn it into a girl because apparently the boy that this happened to It wasn't
2: Baltimore, but it was Maryland. St. Louis, I thought. Oh, was it Maryland? Right, it was Maryland, yes.
0: But the boy this happened to afterwards had no memory of it and went on to work at NASA until retirement. And he's still alive. And they didn't want this to be pinned to him in any way, shape, or form. Interesting. So so apparently it's based on, uh, I haven't read the case files of the case. I did read the novel. Um, Actually, I read the novel before i saw the movie but uh, uh yeah so it's a little town in maryland i can't That's remember right. the name of it
2: it's across the bridge yeah i yeah. for those listening i'm on the eastern shore so it's closer to dc and in baltimore i think it's north of baltimore a little bit
1: yeah
0: and so by love- the way if you get to dc you know go go visit the steps you know the townhouse is there they're further away they're looking to film. The steps, I've walked up and down the steps they're using the film, and they're, they're well chosen. And it's not just because the film has lent them a certain cachet, those steps are scary. There's high walls on either side, they're rough hewn stone, and it's just an abomination of a staircase. Really? And walk up and down them, and you get the creeps. Yeah. Oh. You get about halfway. And you're surrounded by very climbing. You can reach out and touch either side, and and it's just, it's it's like being in a, an MRI machine. Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I saw the director's cut most recent. That, that's the um, that's the that's the one I, I I ended up seeing. Did you did you guys see the director's
2: cut most recently, or did
1: you see the original release?
2: I watched the original release but a couple of years ago I did see the director's cut.
0: Yeah, same.
1: Same. Is okay, so besides the sort of, you know, the crab walk up and down the stairs, what what are what are some of the differences that that you noticed if you if you recall anything?
0: And I, I the end, know there's plenty
1: additional minutes, I'm not sure what minutes they are.
0: Yeah, at the end um Lee J Cobb's character Lieutenant Kinderman has a conversation um And I'm not sure, I'm trying to remember. He has a conversation at the bottom of the steps after Father Karras died and he's given his his last rites. And it's about movies. And I forget who he's talking to. It might have been the priest that that gave the absolution.
1: Thank God they put that back in. (laughs) Other than that, all I I remember is the crab walk. I find director's cuts interesting. You know, like, um, for example, one of my favorite films ever is Amadeus. And uh, I just found some of the you know, some of the scenes that have been re reinserted in the director's cut, I just find kind of puzzling. And another conversation for another podcast, but it's like there's another additional 20 minutes to a half hour, and I just don't
2: quite understand why. But Yeah. I think there were, the the demon's face was superimposed on a couple of things that didn't appear in the original. Um, So, you know, there's a little bit of over-the-topness, I think, to the director's cut. Yeah, it only, it, it,
0: in the original, it only appears when Father Carris is looking at it, having the dream about his mom, and then he quickly flash the face. Quickly,
2: yeah, right. Yeah. So it wasn't a case, it,
1: There wasn't um, any George Lucas thing going on here, right? I mean, is it stuff that was originally shot? I hope.
2: <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think it was stuff that was originally shot and taken out. I know the crab walk was taken out. They, that was an original, and and I think if I and I could be wrong about this, but they, they thought it was just too. It was too much. Too soon, too. Too soon, yeah, that's it, yeah.
0: Because there's yeah. no, um, in, in the film, aside from when she says what she says to the astronaut, Reagan's confined to her room. Yeah. And she's actually physically restrained, which has never explained why. If she can crab walk out, that that would explain why she's physically restrained. But again, it's it doesn't fit in the timeline of, uh, of the possession. It would have been too soon.
1: It's freaky as hell, though. I mean, it is. I would imagine it would have been difficult to take that out. As writers, I'm sure you guys know, it's like, okay, I love this thing. I want to keep it. I love it. But sometimes it just doesn't work for the overall yeah. picture of it. You know, so.
0: Yeah, because a lot of what follows, which again, and, and you mentioned the slow build of this thing, a lot of what follows would be far less shocking if that much was given that soon. That soon, yeah. And it yeah. is, though. It's a spectacular shot gives me chills
1: yeah i mean that that visual is just as terrifying as everything that happens in the bedroom later on so yeah it's it's almost like the the payoff you want you want to delay that so i can entirely see why they would they would take it out
0: well correct me if i'm wrong but if after she crab walks she then chases somebody with her tongue wagging out going whatever she's saying um
1: yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, um, um, as a side note, if there's a, a more astounding five years in cinema history from 1970 to 1975, I'd like to know about it. You know, just some of my personal favorite films were released around that time, you know, going from, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, obviously Godfather, Godfather 2, Chinatown, this uh, Cuckoo's Nest, uh, The French Connection, um, The Conversation, and it just, what a five years of incredible cinema.
0: As you can imagine, and, and the Oscars don't always get it right, I think we'll be the first ones to admit that, but but still, for a film like this, a horror film of all things, in that crop, and not that they were all out the same year, I, I, I'd like to know what other films are up in 73, but for this film to have made it, 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 it really is a statement to, I think, how shocking and effective it was cuz nothing before this was ever like this
1: right right no i mean it was definitely a a transitional era when it comes to um what was acceptable yeah you know i think Bonnie and Clyde was sort of like the uh kick that door open quite a bit and after that you know we have you know again um, I'd like to. Know, I'm sure someone listening to this probably knows. I'm curious when the first f-bomb <laughs> in a Hollywood in a. Uh, <laughs> well, you look like you know.
0: <laughs> no, I, I just remember. Um, what was I seeing? Where and, and it's it's always shocking. Which yeah. Which is why it was quadruply shocking to hear a little girl saying the things that she says in this film.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and again, with Bonnie and Clyde, you have the first. You know, significant act of of violence, yeah. gratuitous acts of uh, of violence. Which you know, obviously it's it's needed, and so um, I guess gratuitous is not the word, but I would say definitely rated R <laughs> in a in its most uh, strict sense in terms of violence for that time. And, and Bonnie and Clyde, I believe, is '67. And so you know, again, after that, you know, it, it was very much um, you know th- those parameters were were being pushed. Constantly.
0: Inclined sixty-seven, that old? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. My goodness. Well,
1: while I'm uh, I mean,
0: Gene Wilder was in a yeah. <laughs> great, great yeah. small
1: part. Yeah, sixty uh, sixty-seven.
0: Yeah. yeah. You, see if you can find out where the where the first F bomb was. But you know, and I remember after The Exorcist, there was a spate. You know, when uh, you know, people tried to make demonic possession films, they were all ridiculous, except for The Omen, which yeah pretty decent film i mean when you have atticus finch trying to stab his own son to death on an altar you're like okay we're going over the top right right we're we're just going to go for it
2: but that was a serious film too it was like the exorcist one of those serious uh films yeah and a slow they're, build. yeah right they're a long way from and i love these films but they're a long way from the hammer horrors you know um,
0: fearless uh, vampire hunters yeah yeah
1: by the way guys uh the the F word has its own Wikipedia page. <laughs> first one. In film. Uh, I was watching
0: um, Hammer film the other day, trying to watch it uh, that I remember from my childhood that, that terrified me as a child. Uh, the Raven with Boris Karloff, Peter Lorre and Vincent yeah. Price. Um, hard to watch.
2: It is hard to watch. I tried to watch it a couple of months ago and I, I've got about 30 minutes in. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it was a cool thing when the, corpse grabs a guy in the coffin and says beware and then after that it was like oh. yeah. i'm so, out yeah <laughs> but yeah. did you find anything bill
1: no I mean, I'm nothing relevant here so um, we're going to leave that up to our uh, our listeners <laughs> yeah go on our facebook page and write keep it clean though um all right so <laughs> we, this is this is the exorcist has become a franchise am i am i, am I wrong about that not that i know much about it but there's there was a sequel which i've never bothered to i, I understand it. it's it's terrible i might, I might be wrong with you guys
0: Burton's in it. really yeah the exorcist 2 the heretic and then the uh, andrew and i were talking about this before you came on um exorcist 3 directed by blatty based on his own book legion and they bring back jason miller and george c scott plays the detective because lee j cobb had passed away um and people say that of the exorcist movies it's the best sequel but that's not saying much
1: (laughs) yeah 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 so this is um it's in my head this movie's been in my head since i rewatched it the last last few days and uh i watched it with uh my wife and she again with her was one of those films that she saw in bits and pieces over the years uh particularly when she was a kid and you know, she was doing a little of this and that and work working on some stuff as I had it on and after a while she looked she she was entirely glued and then disturbed the beyond belief. <laughs> and she asked she actually asked the question, what year was this movie made? And when I told her nineteen seventy-three, she she was she was in disbelief. Yeah, you know, so
0: it's paced differently. I mean in seventy three was when you started really getting into like quick cuts and fast pacing and this and that. This film, and I think Andrew, you said this. It just takes its time. It lets the characters develop, and it lets the situations develop. And then when they finally jam you in the room with that demon, it doesn't pull away.
2: Right. It gets claustrophobic at that point. Yeah. And um, you know, if you juxtapose that with the first couple of scenes in the desert, and there's all that space, and then all of a sudden you're confined, and it really sort of, you know. it it almost becomes like a Polanski film in that sense, that, you know, the spaces are getting, you know, more and more uh, confining. Right, right, yeah. But it goes back to what you said earlier, Bill, I think right at the start, I think, for me, the brilliance of this film, other than the acting, because I do like the acting, is the editing job. I I think that the editing is is really what makes the film. Right, yeah.
0: Well, I think you're right. I mean, the acting, to me, was very natural. I mean, there's a lot of. Sometimes you can always tell that people are acting. I mean, the, but it just it just seemed genuine. Yeah. I I this, read where uh, um. Go ahead. I was gonna say Friedkin, um, you know, he tried to do the uh, the superimposition of the demon's face, especially in that one scene. But apparently, he put a very low background sound of bees in some scenes because people don't like bees.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Let's see what I can do to make people feel as uncomfortable as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. This last time watching it, I was I was shocked because I had forgotten how little Tubular Bells is actually in the film. Uh, I thought it was much more of a of a prominent role uh, in my memory than what it actually is. Yeah. But it's one of those iconic, you know, horror soundtracks. Yeah,
0: Mandela effect kind of thing. Yeah.
2: Right.
1: I always find I love I love when horror is treated as, you know, uh, as as art, you know, and it kind of goes back to Hitchcock with with Psycho. Can you make, can you make a uh, a horror film, thriller film, you know, with with the same standard of acting, storytelling, cinematic technique, as you would with a with a drama, you know, and and I think the excess certainly falls in that, you know, in a, in a genre that's often reduced to uh, B level acting, directing, etc. You know, uh, we certainly have many, many horror films that are treated as um, you know, as significant Mm -hmm. artistic expressions and and The Exorcist is definitely in that category. The Shining would be another. For
0: me, it's The Haunting of Hill House, the original. um, The original, yeah. Black and white, beautiful film.
1: Not the Liam Neeson one?
0: Oh, God. I'd like to do a podcast on that film just to talk about everything they get wrong
1: yeah right after the one on the island of dr moreau <laughs> oh, oh my.
0: but what, what are some others that's what you bring up a good point i mean they they, they take them through we, we said the omen the exorcist um you could i could, you could consider jaws a horror film in a lot of ways i think maybe yeah. psycho yeah. can you think of others um, class or they really
1: yeah i'm sure i'm sure many will you know, many are coming to mind to people listening, but um, yeah, it's in fact you know if we want to go back to psycho, I mean Hitchcock did. Um, it was almost an experiment where he said, "Can I use?" Actually, he used a lot of the technicians and in, and in, in, um uh, you know from his from his TV show to make it on a budget, and then uh, with Hitchcock doing it, he's going to do it know, with you know top-notch technique and and writing. So, and uh, yeah, when you when you see the performances in The Exorcist, you just see actors who are taking this absolutely straight serious. Um, there's there's no uh, you know there's nothing substandard about it. It's very well done.
0: It
2: is. And I think this this notion of horror approaching art is an interesting one, and it certainly goes back to the early days of cinema. And and I'm thinking. Not, I'm thinking of Lon Chaney and and um, you know Phantom of the Opera,
1: Nosferatu, and, or...
2: and Nosferatu. You know, in all of those films. Certainly, I would consider those um, art oh, yeah. at its highest level. Yep,
1: yep, yeah. It's always interesting that when you look at the history of film, what what genres are often kept, you know, in, in the B picture range, and what you know, for example, you go back in time. Certain eras, you know, obviously, uh, superhero films, mm-hmm. uh, science fiction films were often, <laughs> you know, B pictures with the lower, you know, they had the lower budgets and the substandard acting. And now, of course, it's been, it's it's sort of switched where you have um, obviously the the biggest budgets on the planet are going to, you know, film franchises, comic book franchises. Yep. So I, I thought I'd be a little more scared. I I'm, I'm doing this podcast on an extremely f- freaky film with you guys alone in our um <laughs> business. In order to do a podcast, I, I go to my uh you know, the office for my wife and I own a business and it's usually in the dead of night alone. Well who who was the guy behind you?
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Beelzebubba. Bubba.
0: He, he well it's fine now, but when you when you us off and and you're all alone and you're turning the lights out you're trying not to think about those images
1: oh well believe me every time i'm I'm usually fine when the podcast is going but on my way out to the car (laughs) (laughs) i live in the woods of new hampshire so
0: (laughs) i'll be fine until i'm lying in bed tonight looking at the ceiling and and waiting for a little crack to appear
2: yeah and your bed to shake
0: something to (laughs) start scratching at the closet door Very nice. Right. Very nice. Um. Again, beautiful film. I just, want, I just want to point out again the ending where he says, "Come into me," and it does, and his eyes turn yellow, and then it looks like he's going to strangle Reagan. Then he throws himself out the window, and and it's so it's filmed in such a way that you see what's happening, but it's still open to interpretation. It's a beautifully done sequence. Um,
1: Isn't that? One of the priests ends up. We end up finding out is still alive, right? In one of the in one of the sequels. Am I mistaken by that? No, I... In the third
0: sequel, Father Karras is apparently still alive, and still possessed by Pazuzu and a killer who can jump from body to body.
1: Right. Um, yeah. That, that's. I disagree with that choice. And... <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean. It's it's like when you see you know prequels and sequels to the Star Wars films that contradict some of the
2: yeah
1: you know, okay, for example uh, I'm sorry to get off on this where we're, we're <laughs> nothing to do with our current podcast but the fact that the Emperor is still alive
2: mm-hmm.
1: it, it just takes away from the ending of the Return of the Jedi I mean I yeah. I'm sorry anyhow that's another podcast another rant from another, for another oh, podcast.
0: Star Wars. Can <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, so we'll try to correct all of Lucasfilms errors one of these days. <laughs> all of the mistakes. Right.
0: Well now that we we've talked about this, I'm gonna go watch Exorcist Three just to see does it get better or worse? Um Andrew and I talked about the opening before you came on. Uh and again, it's supposed to be the best of the sequels, but it didn't grab me from the beginning.
1: <laughs> yeah I'll, well let me know how it is because i'll uh, i'll take your word for it yeah. <laughs> all, right. Oh, well. Well.
0: all right is this uh should we wrap this up gentlemen
1: i guess it's we, a, we'll call it a wrap Have we
0: exhausted our discussion of the demons exercise <laughs> them a little
1: exactly
2: okay
0: All right. Well, this is the Classroom Critics, our discussion of The Exorcist. As always, we would love to hear what people think. Uh, We'd love your feedback um, on our posts. And also, if there are films that you would like for us to do, please let us know.
1: Take care, everyone.
0: Bye.